0: Welcome to this uh, pre-recorded service of Calvary Evangelical Church in Brighton. It's Sunday the 26th of July and it's the evening meeting. My name is Chris Fry. I'm one of three elders of uh, Calvary Church in Brighton. And um, as you all very well know at the moment, uh, we're not able to meet together In our normal fashion, we're having to do so by Zoom or YouTube, as in this case. And of course, we're longing for the day when we can be properly together, but only when that's safe to do so. I'd like to start with uh, a reading from the Bible. It's actually a quotation from uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He was um, largely responsible for the founding of this church and he's writing to them some years later and at a distance and remembering how it was for him when he first encountered them, when he first went into the city of Corinth. And he says this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except jesus christ and him crucified now please notice that uh, when paul writes to them he's linking the reality and the fact of this marvelous person jesus christ with his crucifixion now many people want to separate the two and in fact many people have done over history um, taken away the idea of crucifixion But for Paul, it's an absolutely essential understanding that Jesus Christ came not only to live, but to die, and to die in a particular way, the death of crucifixion, because the crucifixion has enormous significance and meaning. And the opening song we're going to have tonight is entitled Beneath the Cross of Jesus. It's it's a gentle song which reflects carefully, Upon the meaning of this crucifixion of this death that Jesus endured for our sakes beneath the cross of Jesus.
1: Beneath the cross of Jesus I find- A place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. Oh, hands that should discard me, hold wounds which tell me come beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy. Of His one, beneath the cross of Jesus, His family is my own. one strangers chasing selfless dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonour the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus see the children called by God. Beneath the cross of Jesus The path before the crown, we follow in His footsteps, where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us to be His perfect bride beneath the cross of Jesus. Gladly live our lives.
2: Let's pray.
0: Our Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that we can talk and we can sing of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, it's a terrible thing that anyone should die a death like jesus died but on the other hand it's a most marvelous thing when we recognize that he didn't die for any wrongdoing on his own part but he died in our place as our substitute he paid the penalty for our sin he was willing to go to the cross for our sakes He left heaven to come to earth so that he might live and die on our behalf. We thank you for this marvellous truth. And we thank you that throughout history, men and women have discovered this reality. And to be a Christian is to be a person who recognises that there is no other way for our sin and the judgment of our sin to be dealt with except by the cross of jesus christ so for this we are deeply grateful and we ask that we may give a response of gratitude and thankfulness tonight we thank you too that we know that the cross was not the end it was not just a magnificent gesture but you heavenly father were so pleased with the finished work of your son that you raised him from the dead on that resurrection morning, that he became alive again. Risen into heaven, now seated at your right hand, a living saviour, one we can call upon, one who cares for us. We thank you for this so much. And we pray that we would express our love and gratitude to you again this night in our praises, prayers, songs, the reading and listening to your word. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to draw attention to a verse in the Bible that came to my mind this morning. It's in Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verses 26 and the first part of 27. And it says this, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Let me just stop there and make a comment upon that name, Jeshurun. It actually could be translated Israel. Now we're familiar with that, the God of Israel, the God who took a people for himself, named Israel. So let's start again. There is no one like the God of Israel who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I think that's a fantastic passage of the Bible. It talks of his God who is so great. He rides on the heavens. The heavens belong to him. The whole universe belongs to him. He's on the clouds in his majesty. He's awesome. He's an eternal God without beginning and without end. This mighty God is the one who comes to help his people, provides a refuge for them,
2: and enfolds them in his arms. He doesn't send angels to do this, although he could. But he comes himself to help you, to be your refuge and to enclose you in
0: his arms. What a lovely family picture that is. And we can say it is a family picture because the relationship that God has with his people is like a father to a child. Though he is the mighty God, the eternal God, he's also our father in Jesus Christ. Isn't that an astonishing thought? And what an encouragement that is for us in these days to know that there is one sure, reliable, Person to whom we have, we can come, who is not able only able but willing to help us, to be our refuge, and to smother us in His arms. like right now to read one of the Psalms. It's Psalm One, and it reads as follows: Blessed is the man. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A big contrast, isn't there? And a question I have for all of us, myself included, is this. Where do you find yourself in this psalm? Can you identify with either of the characters described? Can you truly say, "I am the man who is blessed because I don't want to walk in the way of sinners, and I don't, but I do delight in the things of of God,
2: and I love his word
0: if you are in that place. Then God says of you, you're just like a tree planted by streams of water. You're continually nourished and invigorated, and you bear fruit. And your life is marked by that fruitfulness and a prosperity, not necessarily a prosperity in a worldly sense, a material sense, but a but a prospering in your spirit you feel blessed in yourself and you're a blessing to others. Well, that's a mercy and a kindness because we weren't like that naturally. And if we're blessed now, it's because God has chosen to be kind to us, gracious to us and to bless us in that way. And what a sad contrast. Not so the
2: wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away insubstantial nothing to them they won't stand on the day of judgment
0: because God who searches our hearts will reveal all that's gone on in their lives now the Lord watches over the way of the righteous he cares lovingly for them but the way of the wicked only has one direction and that's destruction the question is an important question. It's not just a a poetic device that's being used here. It's a a real challenge to each of us. Are we the blessed man? Or are we the one who's going to be blown away? Are we the person who can stand on the day of judgment? Or are we the person who will find judgment falling upon us in a terrible manner? Well, how important it is to resolve these things and not to push them out of sight. By God's grace, there is nothing inevitable about you remaining a wicked person, a person who ignores Him, despises God, flees from Him. No, you don't have to be in that place at all. You can call out to Him for mercy. And that is his nature and character, to be merciful and gracious and to give you what you need, which is new life in him, a home in heaven,
2: a relationship with him forever. Shall we pray?
0: Our Father, we thank you for your word that reveals yourself and reveals us. In our true colours. We pray, our Father, that you would be merciful and kind to us. Show us where we are, what we need. If we do not know you, we pray that we will be able to respond to you. You'll give us grace to do that. We thank you for if we're hearing this message tonight, we're online tonight, we're hearing something of yourself. And we pray that you use it mightily in our lives. We thank you, that, knowing you, we can come to you with our prayers. And we'd like to pray tonight for all those who are suffering in great measure from the ongoing crisis of COVID. Think particularly tonight of elderly people, people by themselves, people in hospital, people facing operations. Which may be postponed. People in care and nursing homes who've not been able to get out and who've not been able to have visitors. Pray for those who feel worn down, dis disorientated,
2: upset. Oh Lord, encourage them.
0: Now, Father, please help us as a church to be a light, a light on a hill a light that spreads the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the the health and well-being that he brings. We pray, Father, that you would help us as a church in Calvary, you'd help the churches of Brighton and Hove and the churches of this land, that in spite of the, uh, the restrictions on our activities, that we will find ways, inspired by your Holy Spirit, to encourage and bless one another and the world around us. We may have big hearts for our neighbours, our friends, our families, our work colleagues, those we encounter. Some we know well, some we know little. But we pray that these will be days in which the kingdom of Jesus Christ expands, extends. As people in their need call out to you, and we pray that hearts will not grow hard, but rather be softened. And Father, we thank you. Thank you tonight for those who are working in um, lands throughout the world, who are seeking to spread the gospel of Jesus to others. Some of these we know by name. And we pray, Father, for the countries which are represented by those names. We think of Joel in Cambodia and uh, good folk in Sri Lanka. Think of George in Sri Lanka. Bless him, Father, and help those who are struggling with the day-to-day necessities of life in that land as we think also of uh, the work of mission in India, which is often facing great persecution. But we pray that you keep your people steadfast, clinging to you and seeing your help. We pray too for Jamie and Laurie in Albania and uh, ask that you would uphold them through the ups and downs of life. Please look after their family, their young family. Thank you for Michael and Mary Steedman. Thank you for so many years of faithful service that they have um, rendered in Italy. And we pray that you'd keep them going strong, feed them by your word, and help them to bless others. And for Victor and Judith, who, who have spent some, so many good years in Turkey, we pray for them that they would be blessed and helped, as at the moment they, they can't return there, but help them in the land of Mexico, that there would be a blessing there. And we thank you that your gospel is the same. The same message for every country, for every culture, wherever we are. So we bless you for them. And we do pray, Father, for the persecuted church. We know that uh, in these decades, terrible persecution has occurred from the lands of North Korea and China and India and in the Middle East. And we pray for those who have endured so much, We praise you for the marvelous miracles that you have wrought so that people under extreme pressure have stayed close to you and uh, they've willingly sacrificed their lives if necessary for the good of the gospel and for the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. Please look after them this night. And we pray for ourselves. You know the particular challenges that each one of us is facing, particular needs that. uh, have before us and we pray that we would rely upon you in these days, casting all our burdens upon you. As the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Our Father, please hear our prayers in Jesus'
2: name. Amen.
0: We're now going to sing a song which is really a prayer which says speak O Lord, speak O Lord, as we Read the Bible. Speak, O Lord, as we hear the Bible uh, explained. Now, we pray this prayer because we cannot, naturally speaking, properly understand God's word unless he speaks to us. And we pray for that reality to happen again as we look at the Bible and as I seek to expound it. Speak, O Lord. reading tonight is from the gospel of matthew and chapter 26 sunday by sunday we've been going through this gospel and uh, we're now approaching uh, the climax uh, the crucifixion of jesus christ but there are several preliminaries to be considered and we find these in chapter 26 and verses 1 to 13 chapter 26 Verses 1 to 13. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way or crafty way and to kill him but not during the feast they said or there may be a riot among the people verse 6 while jesus was in bethany in the home of a man known as simon the leper a woman came to him with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table when the disciples saw this they were indignant Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? Why are you troubling her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world what she has done will also be told in memory of her our father please come and help us as we look into this word that we may receive the word and it will be light in our lives we will understand what we need to understand and we will obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last Sunday, we were looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, which is briskly titled in my Bible as The Sheep and the Goats. Now, if that title suggests pastoral gentleness and harmony and bliss, then Jesus' words in that passage. Quickly dispel the idea. And there is a gulf, a fundamental separation between those whom Jesus calls sheep, essentially those who belong to and follow him, and goats, those who do not follow him and do not want to follow him. And this difference is expressed in life behaviour. The sheep behave like sheep, the goats behave like goats. And there is no middle ground. You can't have a half sheep and a half goat. And this reminds us again of what we saw in Psalm 1. There's the righteous and the wicked. And there's a big gulf. There's a big difference between the two. Now, many people would like to see themselves as in some sort of middle ground, which they could sort of step into either world at a moment's notice. But that is not the case in God's eyes. There is an absolutely clear distinction. And that's why Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 is is so challenging. The sheep that Jesus, the good shepherd, leads take after the shepherd. And you can see it in their behaviour. They deal tenderly and thoughtfully and kindly with fellow sheep. In a sense, they don't even recognise they're doing it. It just comes out of, of hearts that have been changed. The goats, on the other hand, are wild and unruly, not led by anything but their own desires. And they deal roughly and thoughtlessly, carelessly with the sheep because they have no respect for the shepherd. Now, we, we thought earlier in, in prayer about the persecuted church. and What an example of this sheep and goat behaviour we see throughout the world in the way that Christians are have so often been subject of being maligned being dismissed and more seriously being actively fought against and even tortured and killed because they're christians because they're sheep belonging to the shepherd now these behaviors will be fully exposed on the day of judgment when jesus returns and deals personally with each one of us the awful finality this judgment is expressed in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, to eternal life. How do you
2: believe that? Do you understand that distinction?
0: I suppose it'd be fair to say that many people would like to think that death is just oblivion, Or even death is just the portal to life, a better life, a changed life. But Jesus is saying here that death is, for some, the doorway into eternal punishment. And for others,
2: the door to eternal life. Now, what a contrast. Polar opposites and forever.
0: But who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? Your own instincts and desires or the words of the Son of God? So here's a question. Who are you following? Who is your leader and what is your eternal destiny? The strength of Jesus' words in Matthew 25 is now expressed in two stories that occupy Matthew 26. Verses 1 to 13. In verses 1 to 5, we're told of the plot against Jesus. And in verses 6 to 13, Jesus anointed at Bethany. So if you'd like to have a title for this message, you may put those two stories together and and give this heading. Are you hating or loving Jesus? That's a question. The plot against Jesus, hatred. The anointing at Bethany, love. In which scene do we find ourselves? Are we with the haters or the lovers of Jesus? Because the contrast between these two stories could not be starker. On the one hand, we read of the chief priests and elders of the people assembling to plot how to arrest Jesus and kill him. Using Matthew 25 language, we could say that's the behaviour of goats. On the other hand, we read of an outstanding, outrageous, even controversial example of one person's love for the Lord Jesus. And that's the behaviour, in the language of Matthew 25, of a sheep. These two stories are also found in the Gospels of Mark, chapter 40, Luke, chapter 22, and John, chapter 12 although several of the Gospels only include one of the stories. But they are recorded with some variation, which we'll note as we go along. It's Matthew who sets the context for these two stories in verses 1 and 2. Jesus has finished his teaching. He's been sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. They left the temple area and Jesus gave extended teaching. It says in verse 1, when Jesus has finished saying all these things. Well, he's finished the main part of what he has to say, but he now has some extremely important information for his disciples. In verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away. It's now the Tuesday before the sunset of Thursday, when Jewish families will gather to eat the Passover meal. It's the start of seven days of the solemn feast and jesus says and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified now this isn't the first time that jesus has told his disciples of the fact of his crucifixion he's been preparing them for it but it is the first time when he has told them exactly when it's going to happen in two days the process will begin with jesus arrest on the thursday night The first day of the Passover, climaxing in the crucifixion of Friday afternoon. Oh, shockingly close. We're not told of the reaction of the disciples, but they must have been stunned. In two days, something absolutely dreadful is going to occur. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the pivotal moment of human history. It's also the defining act which separates the sheep and the goats. Those who have no time for Jesus are the ones who shout crucify when given the chance to spare or condemn him as they would be. They want to be rid of him. He's an embarrassment, an irritation, a challenge to their lives. On the other hand, those who love the Lord Jesus can't spend enough time at the foot of his cross. The death of Jesus on the cross is for them a wonderful demonstration of God's love, not just generally, but as something intensely personal. As the Apostle Paul expressed it later, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like Paul, they never tire of coming to the place where God's mercy and justice meet, where sin is cleansed, where acceptance with God has been purchased, and where lives and ultimate destiny are changed forever. And this picture, this contrast, is going to be played out in these two stories. So let's start with the first one, which is the plot against Jesus. It's given in verses 3 to 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly, Or crafty way and to kill him but not during the feast they said or there may be a riot among the people this is a meeting of the sanhedrin comprised of chief priests elders and no doubt scribes as well gathered in the palace of the high priest now it's interesting that matthew gives us the name of that priest and he gives us that name that we might just understand something of the nature of the leadership of these spiritual leaders. We know something of this man. He was a son-in-law of a previous high priest Annas, who had presided as high priest between 86 and fifteen. Caiaphas had been appointed by the Roman governor in AD eighteen. And well we can learn something already for the fact that he was appointed by the Roman governor. And he'd stay in post until 8036 these two men are in post throughout most of the life of jesus these were political appointments and these men were political operators when we read of caiaphas in other places it's clear that godly spirituality has little place in his life he's essentially a wheeler dealer trying to please everybody and to get rid of anything that stands in the way of that It's not said in any of the Gospel accounts, but I think we can take it as read that Caiaphas was present at this very important meeting. There were many other things they could have been doing in the run-up to Passover, but this became a priority one on their agenda. So Luke records rather tellingly that this group of men were afraid of the people. They were meant to be shepherds of a spiritual flock, to give leadership, direction, help, and they turn out to be men pleasers. How do we know what was said at the meeting? Well, perhaps Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus, John chapter three, a secret disciple of Jesus. Perhaps he was present at that meeting, and was able to relay what happened to the gospel writers. It was a dark and unpleasant meeting. How sad that instead of spiritual leaders of preparing themselves and the people to properly celebrate the Passover, they're spending time to plot a murder. To plot a murder. There's no justice going to take place over the next few days. It's a lynching. We don't need to linger long here. But it's clear that there were few, if any, dissenting voices. How uncomfortable it must have been for Nicodemus if he was struggling on a journey to faith and hearing all these things all around him. They closed ranks to get rid of a threat. But they wanted to do it in a, in a private, a secret sort of way to avoid, as they thought, the possibility of a riot. Judas offered to betray Jesus in verses 14 to 16, was exactly what they needed, an insider, someone who would be able to do things in a, in a quiet and sort of underhand kind of way rather than in the public space. Well, what a sad, sad picture of so-called spiritual leadership in Israel. Well, with nothing new there, of course. The prophets had regularly denounced the venal, self-serving nature of spiritual leadership in Israel. Jesus himself had crowned all such condemnation by his own stinging rebukes. Blind leaders of the blind, he described them. And he'd spoken a couple of chapters earlier of all the woes that would descend upon such leadership. Isn't this a fresh reminder to all of us to pray for spiritual leadership in our day, in our land, in our churches How critical and crucial this is. How much we need servant-hearted people in love with Jesus Christ and his people. Messengers for God, able to discern truth from error, right from wrong, unafraid to denounce and stand against unrighteousness and to encourage righteousness, not compromised by double standards. Not being blown along by the tide of the politics of the time. And there's plenty of that around at this moment, isn't there? But being able to stand for the truth of God, unafraid, unashamed, even though that costs them something. Please pray for spiritual leadership in our land and in the churches. Please notice how out of touch with God's plans and purposes these blind leaders of the blind were. How unaware. They were of the very things that God had told them over centuries and that Jesus was telling them now. They say, quite specifically, that this murder was not take place during the feast. But Jesus has tellingly prophesied that it's going to happen in two days' time at the very start of the feast. Now here's a question. Whose plan is going to prevail? Theirs or Jesus? They say that it must be done after the feast in case there's a rise of the people. How little they appreciated the fickleness of the human heart, the very people that they were meant to be leading. Oh, they all over the place, weren't they? As Jesus says in another place, they were like sheep without a shepherd. No fixed point. On Sunday, they shout Hosanna. Four days later, The word is crucify. Well, it's not going to be right. And Jesus knows this. They say that it must be done in a private sort of way, out of the news. What happens is actually something very public and rather remarkable. The ordinary population of Jerusalem at that time was about 50,000 people. But at Passover time, it was swelled to 200,000 people. The place was packed. People from every part of the known world were gathered in that city for that particular seven days of the feast. Hmm. As the disciple Cleopas innocently says to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, some days later, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, you must be unique if you haven't heard about this. This has been the centre of talk, of conversation. Hmm. How does that make the leaders look, these spiritual leaders? Who's in charge of the narrative of this story? It's the sovereign God. His plans and the detail of his plans cannot be thwarted as peter says to the crowd on the day of pentecost this man jesus was handed over to you by god's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross acts chapter 2 verse 23 so here's a question who's in charge the sovereign god who's responsible the crowd with the help of wicked men. This story is such a fulfillment of the words of Psalm two. Psalm two Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. King Jesus. Everything that God intends for King Jesus has come to pass and will come to pass exactly according to God's plan well after that grim but important story it's a joy to turn to the second verses 6 to 13 Jesus anointed at Bethany this story is also told in Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 12 however there is an apparent difference in the Matthew and John accounts Matthew is this story set after the account of Jesus speaking to his disciples two days before Passover, verses 1 and 2. But John says that an anointing happened six days before the Passover. So some have thought that there must have been two separate anointings. Not out of the question. One six days before the Passover and another two days before the Passover. But the descriptions in Matthew and John also mark are very similar well how to square that circle i suggest that what's happening here is that a single anointing took place six days before the passover as definitely stated by john in matthew and mark look carefully it's not said that the anointing took place two days before the passover it just happens that the account of the anointing is set in matthew and mark after events That took place two days before the Passover. If so, this would be one of a number of examples of the way in which the Gospel writers tell stories and parables, teaching and miracles, in a deliberate manner to make a point rather than to give you a chronological diary. As we saw earlier, the two stories in Matthew are a strong example of the sheep and goats teaching of Matthew 25. A point is being made, which would disappear if the only story told was about the plot to kill Jesus. So what can we learn from this striking story? For a start, we can think about this gathering as a good example of Middle Eastern hospitality. This is the home of Simon the leper. Rather unfortunate name, you might think, but perhaps he was glad to have that title accorded to him because he clearly had been a leper but the fact that he was entertaining all these guests indicates that he was no longer a leper quite possibly one of those healed by jesus quite possibly one of those who came back to say thank you to jesus and certainly one who is saying thank you to jesus now as he opens up his home to jesus and the 12 disciples and who else was there well john 12 tells us that lazarus and his sister martha was there they were residents of bethany so it would have been quite natural for them to be in the same circle well that's 15 people and there were possibly more quite a crowd lazarus was a remarkable presence remember he'd been resurrected by jesus just a few days before now eating with the rest Ah, but there's one more person present who is not actually identified by name by Matthew or Mark, but is declared to be a Mary by John. Now, there are quite a few Marys in in the Bible um, and in the New Testament and in the days of the crucifixion and resurrection. So we then have to ask the further question, well, which Mary might this be? Well, the location, Bethany, and the setting with Lazarus and Martha present, rather clinches the point that this is most likely Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. They are so often named together in the Gospel accounts. She is the one who would sit at Jesus' feet, carefully listening to him, the woman with spiritual sensitivity, and one who had personally witnessed the raising of her brother to life. Their home had been a home for Jesus, a place where he felt comfortable and at ease in a way that nowhere else in the Gospel record Could compare and she was clearly devoted to Jesus and this is her day and this is her moment they're in the midst of supper and in the fashion of the time sitting on the floor facing the table with their lower body and legs angled away so to make a practical point that will help us later almost the whole of their bodies are visible unlike the Western habit of sitting on chairs with your legs certainly tucked under the table Mary brings an alabaster jar filled with precious ointment or perfume so that's a form of China in a way John points out that it's a pint of pure nard it's a pint of pure nard so I'm thinking, in my preparation, of a pint of milk. Thinking how much liquid there is in a pint of milk, but this isn't milk. This is pure nard. Not only is it nard, but it's pure. It's not diluted or mixed, as it might have been. It's very costly. It's worth a year's wages for a labouring man, or a Roman soldier. And in the gospel accounts, it's clear that people in that room, once this jar had been Brought out, knew exactly what it was and knew how pricey it was. Just think of it a pint sized bottle filled with ointment worth, let's say, £20,000. It's the sort of jar that you would keep in a safe place and use very sparingly. But this jar has not been opened. It's certainly been kept in a safe place, but it's awaited this day and this moment. So purposefully and carefully, Mary approaches Jesus. Matthew and John then say that she pours out the ointment on Jesus' head and feet. Mark adds the important detail that she didn't just carefully uncork the bottle or a similar action, but deliberately broke the jar. She must have struck the neck of the jar against some furniture and the perfume flowed not as a careful dribble, but a torrent, onto Jesus' head and feet, and indeed, anywhere else, on Jesus' body. So that, as John tells us, the room, not just the immediate vicinity, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Unmistakable. Mary had no intention of saving any of the perfume in the bottle. Perfume and bottle were to be entirely exhausted, on Jesus. This was her expression of love for the Lord Jesus. Surely no one had any idea that Mary had planned to do this. It was just a very personal gesture, reflective of her very personal love for the Lord Jesus. And what a 100% kind of action it was, holding nothing back, without reservation. Jesus and Mary knew exactly what this was about and what this meant, but nearly everyone else doesn't seem to be on the same page. The three Gospel writers pointedly draw at attention to the fact that there were near universal indignation. Mark says that some were indignant. Matthew says that the disciples were indignant, and according to John, Judas Iscariot, acting like a spokesman for the rest, objected Can't help but just think that just a few verses later we read about the thirty pieces of silver. <coughs> That was his reward for betraying Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, 120 denarii for betraying Jesus.
2: Mary's jar, worth 300 denarii, is just poured out as a love offering to Jesus. Well,
0: however many were involved in this indignation, it's clear that they Hardly dare to speak it. So they express this to one another in sort of murmurings and mutterings, and apparently some harassment and bothering of Mary with their indignant comments. Verses eight to ten. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked one another. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They thought they had a the high moral ground, but Jesus takes a completely different view and silences their murmurings. Verses 10 and 11. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. High praise from Jesus, who sees not only the deed, but the heart. For him, this action was beautiful. The poor you'll always have with you, but you not always have me. How true, that in just a few days, Jesus will be dead, and after resurrection day, Anointing of Jesus would no longer be appropriate or necessary. Four, verse 12. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. On resurrection day, two other Marys had hurried to the tomb with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. But they were thwarted because Jesus had already risen from the dead. There was no body to be anointed then but Mary had got in first, and anointing for burial was now taking place. Did Mary realise this? Oh, we can't tell. But that was how Jesus understood this and spoke openly of it. Mary did it for deeply personal reasons of her love for the Lord Jesus. But as so often happens in the lives of Jesus' disciples, the significance of a single action can far exceed the thoughts and intents of the disciple they may be very unaware of the significance just as those perplexed disciples in matthew 25 had little appreciation of the significance of their behavior care for the poor in jesus name is the bread and butter of christian discipleship but there are times for outrageous acts of love to be expressed to jesus one might draw an analogy to a marriage where daily practical love is expressed in a multitude of ways. But every so often, a husband or wife might offer a lavish, unasked-for gift to one another. This is a love gift. It's for you because I love you. Jesus didn't need this gift, but he was deeply touched by it. So Jesus says in verse 13, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Not just that we might remember Mary. In fact, it's interesting that in Matthew's account, she's just known as a woman. So it's not a person-focused issue, but a recognition that we should realize that for every Christian person, The nature of our life is not only to receive God's great mercies but to respond in heart gratitude. These two truths are inextricably joined together God's lavish, gracious love to us, our response of glad love to Him. And there are times when this will be expressed in very costly ways. We don't know how Mary came to possess this very expensive jar of perfume. We don't know what she had thought to do with it. But one day God told her what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And the moment came and she obeyed. Perhaps God has given you something that is actually costly or costly in your thinking. You don't really know what to do with it. Or perhaps you think you do. But could this be an opportunity For you to show outrageous love for Jesus, doing something that the world and even fellow Christians might see as a waste, foolhardy, over the top, risky, too enthusiastic. Well, church history actually belongs to those who are in many ways seen as foolhardy, wasting, over the top, over enthusiastic. And we read what happened as God saw that love and blessed it. The story reminds us that in the everyday of life, opportunities to show his special love for Jesus will arise. And if we are spiritually sensitive, we'll hear the whisper or more of God's voice.
2: Ask him. Amen.
0: Let's sing this lovely song, Oh the Deep deep love of Jesus.
3: Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus
0: close with reading final verses from the letter to the Corinthians or the second letter to the Corinthians chapter 13 verses 11 to 14 Finally brothers, goodbye aim for perfection, listen to my appeal, be of one mind live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you greet one another with a holy kiss can't do that at this moment can we we can wave all the saints send their greetings may the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all amen